0: All right, thanks everyone for coming. Um, so today we're going to be hearing um, from Mara, who's a second year CMS master's student, uh, and then also um, from Laura, who is a Palestinian journalist uh, affiliated with the for Palestine Studies. So um, yes, I'll let them uh, introduce themselves a bit more and tell us a little bit about what they're going talking about today. So thank you. You're perfect. Laura, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, great. Um, so thank you everybody for coming out here. I would actually like to begin today's conversation by first explaining the difficulty that Laura and I had in bringing this workshop to life. Um, so last March until May, I participated in the How to Write Your Own Nakba Story workshop hosted by Laura and IPS in commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the Nakba. In May, after publishing my family's Nakba story, I spoke to some university members about potentially bringing this work to campus. First to acknowledge the monumental historical marker of 75 years of occupation um, in Palestine on our campus, especially because I'm a student in the Middle Eastern studies department. And I felt that there just wasn't enough being done to sort of have this conversation and, and commemorate 75 years of occupation. And also because I wanted to discuss with the individuals who actively study my community, the proper approaches to this work, the importance of oral history production and the weight that this work carries for Palestinians specifically. But in May, I was dismissed and I was directed to quote, talk about my activism in another space. So since May, Laura and I have been discussing um, and we met various times over the summer to talk about ways to bring this work to our campus while we're still in the 75th year of um, since the NECBA. And so luckily, thank you um, Theo for allowing us to kind of use this space in Manhattan to have this. We originally were supposed to start this, have this workshop on October 12th, which was the first week of the onslaught on Gaza. When we announced that we were postponing this workshop on October 12th, I received hateful emails demanding that we cancel and stating that our work justifies violence. And as the current genocide in Gaza ensues, we actually decided that it's more important now than ever to share with our community the ways to effectively produce oral histories and to narrate our reality. Because Palestinian suffering is currently being live streamed and consumed in mass from both the perspective of Palestine and Israel, and as we demand for people to recognize and sympathize with our death, there are streams of media which celebrate it. So we carry the burden of having to narrate our existence with extreme precision as well as with extreme love and care towards our community because our stories are actively erased and our narratives are twisted. So. We must ensure that the lives of over 11,000 people are not forgotten. And we do this work to humanize ourselves and to preserve our history. We have to bring these stories to life to clarify time and time again that we're not just numbers. Today, Laura and I are gonna be defining oral history. We're gonna offer some technical um, tools for collecting and reproducing oral histories. We'll be evaluating the importance of this work in the case of Palestine. And then we'll be reading two short excerpts from the story that I published through IPS as well as from the Letters from Gaza project which Laura will speak on more um, briefly. Laura Elbest is a Palestinian journalist and she's the senior editor of digital strategy and communications at the Institute of Palestine Studies USA. And she is the original organizer of the next story workshop, which I participated in. Laura, I'll go ahead and pass it over to you to introduce um, this work yourself and the letters from Gaza.
1: Thank you Um, so much, Mara. And um, I'm really happy to be sharing this space with you but also this hybrid with people in the room, as well as everybody who has just joined us online. Um, you know, Marah mentioned, um, you know, today we are gonna be sharing with you some of the, some thoughts on the stories that were collected from the 1948 Nakba um, to the genocide in Gaza right now in 2023, both committed by the same perpetrator, Israel. Um, the Letters from Gaza uh, series was not a planned, series. Even the name came weeks after we began publishing these testimonies. We were just publishing them with a title and then when we shared them online, we said, here's a testimony from Gaza, from Iman. Here's a testimony from Gaza, from Mahmoud. Um, In October, we suddenly found ourselves frantically calling family and friends, uh, following the news. We're in a state of complete shock, unable to Comprehend the scale of what has happened and what is still happening. And so this, the collection of these testimonies began with a desire to amplify voices. And I knew, and I'm, I'm sure maybe some of you who are, who are constant readers of Palestinian stories are familiar with the website We Are Not Numbers. Um, it's a nonprofit um, uh, that trains young Palestinian writers from Gaza Um, to write their stories um, to, you know, those who are aspiring journalists. And I thought, let me ask permission to republish one of their stories. And I did that. We started with republishing one testimony uh, about what happened to one writer's family. Her name was Iman. And after we published that story um, and somehow forcefully broke through the shock that we were in, we wanted to find more voices And I made a simple personal post on Instagram asking, hey, if you have family in Gaza, if you're in Gaza, we'd like to hear from you. And Mahmoud Mushtaha reached out to me. He's a journalist in Gaza right now. And he wrote about day five of this war, of this genocide. And then the testimonies started pouring in, not just through our U.S. office in Washington, D.C., but also our offices in Ramallah and Beirut. Writers from Gaza reached out and submitted their testimonies in Arabic, and we've translated some of them into English, or our own staff reached out to people in Gaza to interview them. There was one journalist in the south of Gaza who actually volunteered to collect some testimonies from displaced families, and we've published these and translated them online. And while the communications right now continue to slow down and voices continue to be even less and less reachable and, and things are taking time for us to even have a, any form of communication with people, we're still trying to get stories out. Right now, there's a, there's a short testimony that's about to come out about an 84-year-old um, grandmother. Her name was Ferial, who was shelled by an Israeli tank. She was evacuating her home with her family. She fled on foot and they found themselves in front of an Israeli tank um, that fired at her and killed her. Another story we're about to publish is about a young man in Gaza who usually just cares about computers and IT, and he found himself volunteering to provide humanitarian aid to displaced families, but was repeatedly bombed every time they tried to get into a car or try to, to distribute. He recently escaped death when they bombed one of the hospitals in Gaza a few days ago. The series also currently includes testimonies about families that are sheltering in Onurwa schools, a student in Beirut, and her conversations with her little brother um, in Gaza, and a father apologizing to his baby son for experiencing this, the first war, uh, his first Gaza war. And while perhaps the format and the people from the Nakba workshop that we did and the testimonies we're currently publishing are different. It is the same settler colonial Zionist force executing this horror against the Palestinian people. The questions that we asked during the Nakba Stories workshop was, what happened to their families and neighbors in 1948? Where did they go? What was different when they stayed, returned? Who was lost? What was left behind? What are the memories that were passed down? And what was built in exile and in refugee camps? And in the generations that came after the expulsion. But the questions that were answered unprompted in the letters from Gaza today were also what happened to their family and neighbors when the bomb dropped in October? Where did they go? What was returned? Who was lost? What was left behind? What are the memories that will be passed down? And how are the people helping each other during this? genocide and expulsion. I go back to you, Mara.
0: Thank you, Laura. So I'll start by going over briefly, what is oral history? How do we define it in the academic space? Um, The way that we've sort of split up this workshop is I'll be speaking slightly more as a writer and also as an, from the academic perspective. And Laura will be speaking more from the perspective of the journalists and the individuals who are publishing this work um so oral history as we all know is a historiographic method but it's largely contested due to the reliance on memory and personal narrative oral history is a living archive it offers a dynamic sense of history because it doesn't only speak to historical fact it offers a scope of understanding social conditions especially among palestinians memory itself is a profound historical source because it has a particular function it doesn't just operate to give us a fact and to give us something that was um sort of recorded in the sense that we would read in a historical text. Otherwise, we don't get percentages, we don't get numbers. What we get is a personal recording of what happened in that particular moment. Um, And it speaks to both contemporary and social historical condition. Um, So the way that this worked for me, at least, is um, my grandparents who I had interviewed for the original necklace Story, all three of them have dementia. Um, So kind of like unveiling those stories was a very difficult process. What parts of the story were actual legitimate memories? What parts of it were fabricated? What parts of it offered a sort of function um, for coping with their current conditions, having been displaced multiple times? How do they process, um, if even at all, their current state living in the US when they've lived in Amman, they lived in Palestine, they lived in Kuwait, they lived in all these various um, places and they lived through various wars? Um, So, when we're conducting oral history projects, the the questions that we have to ask is what is suppressed? How do these stories emerge and what's celebrated in this context? Um, So when you begin oral history work, and at least in my experience, you're activating memory. So our approach to this is extremely critical. It's not just we're having a conversation or recording some facts. You're actually opening up a gate to a memory that may have been suppressed, to a memory that may be repeated often, um, and everything else that surrounds that. So our approach to this has to be very, very um, careful. And there are five types of oral history interviews. I'll go over briefly. There's the life story, there's a topic-based story, there's a theme-based story, place-based and object-slash-artifact-based. The stories that we conducted originally were life stories and the ones that um, Laura is currently collecting are also life stories, but they're also topic stories. They're also theme stories. Um, the, The ways that individuals sort of approach narrating their lives vary and they fall under various um, categories. A large part of oral history collection is actually silent interaction. It's not, what am I gaining from the interview? What am I hearing from this individual? It's more, what am I observing from their actions? Is their body language comfortable? How do they feel when I ask certain questions? Are they even responding to my questions? What, when are they taking moments of silence? How do we operate when they're taking moments of silence? So when we originally did this workshop, the way that we were trained was to um, allow silence to exist. So if somebody gets quiet or if somebody says, I don't wanna speak, we sit in the silence and we let it be uncomfortable because eventually somebody will speak and eventually somebody has to break the silence and the way that they break the silence is really critical. And what we record after that moment and the way that we engage with that particular interaction is very, very important, especially ourselves as the writers and as the narrators of these stories Whether or not it's somebody that you have a personal, intimate connection to, or it's somebody that's separate. And a really large part of that is working against, especially in the context of Palestine, this damage slash suffering centered narration. There has to be community accountability when we're conducting oral history um, interviews. And the way that we're able to sort of build a trust to even arrive at being able to conduct an oral history interview, especially in the context of Palestine, is you have to share the commitment to liberation. And that's that's what builds the trust with your subjects, right? We have to sit there and honor the fact that I am unveiling either something that is occurring in this moment or something that occurred in the past, something that you have lived through. And through that, I'm actually trying to encourage promotion and expansion of this narrative and reading of your specific narrative to allow you to have freedom in the future or potentially to allow future generations to have freedom. Um, So a really important quote that was offered to us by Professor Jennifer Muhannam, who was um, one of the original lectures in the original workshop that we did was by Eve Tuck. The danger and damage centered research is that it, it is a pathologizing approach in which the oppression singularly defines a community. We have to understand both our intention and the impact of the story that we're either gathering from somebody and also the story that we're narrating. Um, so we have to be very careful about our approaches in first of all asking questions to somebody what is our intention in even approaching individuals so especially right now in this case um there are a lot of cases of journalists who are not palestinians approaching people in gaza approaching journalists in gaza that are very insensitive and laura will be speaking on that a little bit more um so i'll go ahead and pass it over to you laura to talk about oral history and journalism and give us more of an understanding on that Ah, uh, you're mute. You're muted, Laura.
1: Yeah, sorry. Um, so now we have a little framing on what oral history is and how it was used to collect these stories, right? So, what is the power of oral history as journalism? The practices have so many similarities um, because to report is to report as a journalist is to collect stories, and then to collect stories as an oral historian is to report information. But at the same time, they're very different. Um, Both are concerned with reporting truth and being accurate. They both rely on interviews for credibility. But journalism is concerned with the immediate truth, wanting to inform an audience about that truth. While oral history is concerned about truth over time, So there's more depth in the questions that are asked. There's a need to interpret the events that are told and put them in a greater scheme of things, put them in their place in history, not just as an event that has occurred and that we're talking about. And there's greater perspective and, surprisingly, more honesty in the practice of oral history. But combining those two practices is very powerful, because you're using tools of documentation while telling a story, you're verifying information that you collect, but you're also engaging in what they mean, you're asking questions, but you're not interrogating your subjects. And perhaps three main things that we pulled out of the practice of journalism are narrative writing or feature writing, because feature is narrative interviewing techniques that can be sort of compared with interviewing techniques when it comes to oral history, and then trauma informed tools, which I'll, I'll dive into. I'll briefly touch on these three. When we talk about narrative writing, we're talking about it's nonfiction. We're still telling you know truthful things have occurred, but it's the hyper focused on the craft of the story. So it, it, it derives from techniques of literary writing. And during the workshop, we talked a little bit about the scientific impact of telling a story for a reader, how they perceive it in a different way, how it impacts them, how they see different values that resonate to them versus them reading a regular news story, right? Feature stories and narrative stories are often told in a less hurried, more creative way than hard news. They focus on the human element. They're fundamentally people stories. They're made to last, they're timeless, um, they remain relevant even as the news cycle move on, moves on. They're more personal, creative, experimental, they they explore the human experience and they go beyond the basic questions of journalism that are who, what, where, when, and they explore how and why. So when you're a journalist and you're doing interviews, because we, you know, we talked to we, we're talking about techniques of interviewing as well. You're doing your homework, you're doing some research, you're reading, you're looking for the different sources to interview, you can share your questions ahead of time, you ask open ended questions, but you're looking for specific answers. And when you did your interview, when you're done, you may not talk to that person, again, you may keep them as a source for future stories, but when you're transcribing the interview and putting it in your actual news story or in your actual whatever it is that you're covering as a journalist, you're looking for quotes. You're looking for quotes that are descriptors, quotes that show you something, but just quotes. Quotes that fit in your grander um, narrative of things. But when we're looking at oral history, it's more about capturing the person and their story rather than the story that's attached to that person. So when we did oral history, interviewing techniques while we're trying to write a journalistic story, we're not writing about the Nakba. We're writing about Marah's three grandparents and their experience with the Nakba. We're writing about Sido Habib, um, who was from Ailabun in in Palestine and his experience with the massacre of Ailabun. We're talking about uh, Abdullah Mwaswas's grandmother. um, And these are all stories that I've linked in the chat and I'm, I'm sure Marah can share. We're talking about her experience escaping on a boat to Lebanon. When we're talking about the family friend of Samah Fadl, who was who also one of the writers, we're talking about his experience having to conceal his identity as a Palestinian and, and living in exile. So those are the different sort of techniques that, that we're looking at. Some part, A few particular tips or tools that, I, that that we can give is that when you are doing an oral history interview, and Marah talked about it a little bit, is have, be, be comfortable with the silence, right? We talk about how oral history gives a lot of time. You can come back to the story. You can come back to the person. You don't have to get all your answers in one sitting. You ask open ended questions as you do as a journalist, but you're following the conversation. You're not trying to reach an end goal. You're just following what the person is telling you and how they're painting those stories. And Marah will talk a little bit about this, but when we're talking about, you know, in, in our culture as Palestinians, we are by nature, you know, storytellers. We are oral storytellers. A lot of us know our stories because we've sat around our father or our grandmother or someone in the community and they were telling us these stories. We don't read our stories, we listen to them. So when we did these workshops, we're trying to reach a different kind of audience that is not used to sitting down and listening in a circle, but is, right? And the last thing I'll I'll touch on this is the trauma-informed tools. Let me tell you something. Trauma-informed reporting is a new field in journalism, and it is not a requirement in schools. And I think that's really insane that journalists today are graduating and they are not required to take a trauma-informed reporting class, um, especially when they're reporting on things like what's happening right now in Gaza. The existing resources on on the study of trauma-informed reporting focus on the journalists' feelings, not their quote unquote subjects' feelings. And I'm not saying that's wrong. It's important because we're talking about journalists who spend a lot of time covering war, covering school shootings. They're covering um, an earthquake. They're covering gender-based violence. They're they're taking in a lot. So obviously they have to take care of themselves. But what about the people that they're interviewing? Uh, not a lot of journalists have the empathy required, and the tools required to recognize the different physiological and psychological signs that someone. A event, um, that come out of the goes through while they're being a few of these tools were taught to these journalists just to realize if someone's uncomfortable, you can tell them that you know we, we'll come back to this or take a moment. Let's take a break. Should we change the the room? Um, being able to say no and say you know what, let's end it. I'm not going to ask you this question. Let's move on. A lot of journalists don't have that. They're they're chasing a quote. They're chasing. Um, a story, and you know, Marah mentioned this as well. We're we're opening a gate into memory, but we're also re-traumatizing people. Um, so it's important to really have a lot of the. And if you guys have a few questions about the different trauma tools, we can definitely talk. About what I can tell you is that it's about patience. It's about recognizing when someone's irritable or feels shameful. from um, a question, but being. But instead of asking them, oh, tell me how you feel, describe how you felt in that moment, instead asking questions like, how did you experience that event? What do you remember when you think about the event? Where would you like to be? Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there and, and go back to you, Mara.
0: Okay, I'm gonna go briefly over oral history in the case of Palestine and why we're exceptionalizing Palestine slightly in this particular conversation. So first, going back to what Laura was just saying about trauma-informed reporting and about how it's taught here, at least in the West. um, Let's be like very, very like candid right now. Palestinian journalists who are in Gaza right now are like literally experiencing the trauma and being forced to report on it because nobody else is reporting the narrative, honestly. Right? And then also at the same time, like individuals who are in the West who are trying to do this work, as Laura will actually speak on um, in a little bit, when we're trying to get these stories and we're trying to like publish them, we're trying to work with individuals because we want to aid, you know, people in Gaza, we want to be able to narrate their stories for them. We also are in a time crunch. We have no idea if in this case, the individual who we're interviewing today is going to be alive tomorrow. In the case of like me for my grandparents, when I was interviewing them, I don't live in the same state as my grandparents. So when I went and I was sort of opening these wounds, quote unquote, and I'm going back and I'm trying to do these oral history interviews, I only had one or two days. I could do like one grandparent a day. I would ask questions. I had a very difficult time getting answers from them um, for various reasons. And then when I would leave, my grandparents would start telling stories. And that, like when we're talking about opening like traumatic wounds and things like that, it's, there are various levels to this. And as I mentioned earlier, all three of my grandparents have dementia. So I'm having these conversations, I'm trying to open up these stories and some stories are coming out very weirdly. I'm not sure if this is accurate. They're telling me about wars that we're not sure if they even happened. Whether or not they happened is also a case of was, were they recorded in history? Like, did anybody else record our history for us? Why do three individuals remember a war at the same time and not, they were all in different places? What is the function of that particular memory? What is the function of that trauma, right? Um, And us as individuals who are trying to report currently um, on what's occurring in Gaza, when we talk to other individuals, and Laura will speak on this, um, it's very difficult to actually get stories out of people. Even one-on-one here in the West, we're trying to have conversations with individuals about how they feel. People are paranoid, people are uncomfortable. As a Palestinian, the stakes are high. Telling our stories, narrating, everything is very, very difficult in this particular case. But also when I talk about exceptionalizing Palestine, it's not just for these reasons. I think, and Laura and I have discussed this, we need to exceptionalize every single case when we're talking about oral history. For any individual who is conducting oral history interviews, who's narrating for their family, you need to exceptionalize your case. That's the point of oral history. Why should we hear this story? Why is it important to record this? Why do we need to narrate this? That's the point, right? And so for us right now, as Palestinians speaking to you, as a journalist, as a writer, as an academic, we can speak to you about why we think it's important for us but also if you're here because you wanted to get these tools, it's it's important for you as well. It's important to continue narrating your stories. Um, So returning kind of to exceptionalizing our case, historical imagination of the Palestinian people, it's kind of like a wound, right? We're not, there's no post pre-trauma, it's a chronic trauma. Um, And what's currently occurring in Gaza, specifically for the reception of the Palestinian question for people that are not Palestinian or not within the community, um, it's kind of like a rupture of that historical imagination because the histories that have been passed on to us, which we've discussed pre, during, post-48, 1967, 1982, 1963, all these various times in Palestinian history, we've internalized that, we know the stories. As Laura said, as, as Palestinians, oral history is a tradition. It's not necessarily just something that's done to sort of record our stories. That is how we share. That's the only way that we're able to record our memory. A lot of our history exists in memory, it exists in these traditions. Um, but what's currently occurring in Gaza, not only is it horrifying for us as Palestinians, but it's also unimaginable for the world beyond the Palestinian. That's why oral history is important, right? Because we can say, well, we've been talking about this for years, we've been having these conversations, we're recording these stories and we're fighting to maintain these people's narrative to keep these people alive, because realistically, like that's almost one of the only things that we can do in our power is to narrate their stories at the very least. Um, but then the rest of the world sees like, oh, we weren't lying about the extent of our condition, right? There, There's, when we said, you know, I think like there are a lot of conversations that have happened throughout what's been happening. It's been 41 days now um, and conversations in the beginning were like, tomorrow, I think we might have a ceasefire. Maybe tomorrow, maybe after, maybe if we call up, maybe if we do this, maybe if we do that potentially. And I think now the conversation is kind of slightly hopeless but the way that that conversation has shifted for us and then also the way that we can kind of see the rest of the world reacting to it, right? So now people want to hear our stories but also at the same time, we want to narrate even more. People want to bring these stories alive. So it's not just the case of where when I'm talking to my grandparents and it's something that's a historical moment and I'm fighting tooth and nail to t- get these stories out of their minds and I'm leaving them and then they want to start narrating, right, I've opened a wound. Right now we're actually in the current moment and we're in that, um, that experience. And so for the Palestinian people specifically, narrative is a landscape. The way that we imagine our nation, the way that we imagine our existence, it's all through narrative, right? The physical landscape has been demolished time and time again. We're witnessing it right now. The way that we're able to kind of maintain what is the Palestinian nation, who are the Palestinian people, that is through our narrative, that's through our oral history. It's through these efforts that um, we're doing right now. And something that's really important is kind of questioning, how do we understand ourselves then through that collective narrative? Because we're operating outside of the bounds of a nation state, confronting Palestinian existence in different conditions of occupation challenges what we can call like a collective Palestinian consciousness or this collective understanding of what the nation is, right? There are various narratives, depending on where your family was in 1948, where they were in 1967, where they were at any of these periods of time, Where at what point were you dispossessed? At what point were you displaced? Are you exiled completely? Can you return? Have you ever returned? All these narratives vary, um, but using oral history and Amplifying these narratives actually allows us to relate and understand these various conditions of occupation. And that is the same for kind of allowing the rest of the world to understand our conditions. So in the case of Gaza right now, when we're talking about these journalists who are who are risking their lives anyway, right? Their lives are risks, but they're risking their lives even more by being journalists, by being the people who narrate. They're actually amplifying this reality to the rest of the world. So for us, yes, we're tuned in, we're watching Al Jazeera 24 seven, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on um, every single media that you could possibly think of, right? But for the rest of the world, it's also kind of creating a shift because our narratives are being told. And so now now people in these communities want to narrate. Um, And the role of oral history in the Palestinian consciousness, as I mentioned, it, in the words of Julianne Hammer, it creates this sort of Palestinian communitas that we belong to one another. Right, because there's so many points in our, in our history, so many ruptures in Palestinian history. When we look at the nekba, the nekba is a canon. The nekba is not just a one-time event. It didn't just happen in 1948. That's why we're talking about the ongoing nekbah. We're seeing it right now with our own eyes. Um, but even when we were doing this in May, it was still the ongoing nekbah. When we were talking about this in June, it was the ongoing nekbah. When Laura and I met in September, when we had officially decided that we were going to be doing this, it was still the ongoing nekbah. All of these points in history, our ruptures in the Palestinian consciousness and our ruptures in our historical fabric and in, in this idea of a collective nation, right? So then what we do is we use narrative to relate to each other and to understand, understand each other's various conditions of occupation, why we behave certain ways, what are the impacts of various forms of trauma um, on different Palestinians. And that's really critical in understanding from the perspective of a researcher and a writer, not just as a Palestinian, as somebody who's outside of the Palestinian community, right? How do you study us then? How do you approach our condition? How do you narrate our reality? We're not a conglomerate. We're not, at no point in Palestinian history have Palestinians been a homogenous community, pre-1948, pre-1918. We've never been collectively unified by one single, known experience of being Palestinian. Um, And I think that's more true now than ever, of course, according to our history and our condition. But we do have to look at sort of points in history such as the Nakba as the root of a chronic trauma um, and the physical and social fragmentation of our landscape and our people. And to kind of understand that we can look towards um, the, the sort of like theorization of the historical Um, imagination by Carl Figlio and also by um, Henry Corbin, and then using these ideas where we see history is entirely imagined, right? We have no, especially in the case of Palestine, we have no sort of physical thing that we can look at and say this is historical, right? We have to imagine entirely in our own minds so in the case of Palestine when we're imagining history entirely how do we function and how do we approach that imagination? And then how do we narrate that imagination in a way that's effective and also allows us to maintain our quote unquote nation, to maintain our collective identity at the same time to develop a landscape, right? We have no concrete landscape. And as it's being seen right now, it's literally being ripped to shreds, it's demolished. And even when we talk about futures of liberation, quote unquote, right? How do we even conceive that? First, if there's no unified sense of Condition under occupation, second, if there is no unified nation, right? How can we imagine? What does liberation look like then? For an individual who is Palestinian who grew up in 48 territories, for an individual who's Palestinian who grew up in Gaza, for an individual who's Palestinian who grew up in the West Bank, somebody who's in Chile, somebody whose family actually left before 1948. We had an individual who was working in the workshop with us. um, And when she was telling us her story, she said, my family was actually in Colombia before 1948 once the Nakba happened we just couldn't return so how do we understand then do we want it is return the ultimate goal is it just right to existence is it how do we sort of like reimagine what the landscape will look like then and oral history allows us to do that having these conversations trying to find out what specifically our community needs and this is even more relevant right now in the context of gaza people are having conversations we we can't just look towards Palestinians outside of the community in Gaza to ask the question, what do you guys need right now? We need to ask Gaza what they need right now. What do you need? You're in the land. What what do you want from us then outside of that? We can't just continue saying, oh, like freedom, liberation, because right now we need ceasefire, life, right? These are conversations that we have to have about when we imagine futures of the Palestinian people, we have to think short term, long term, we have to consider every single condition of occupation. And that's what oral history allows us to achieve. Um, and when we look towards that narrative as a landscape, I think um, we are able to kind of reconceptualize a future, quote unquote, liberated Palestine a lot better. And maybe we can have a, a slight sense of hope at the very least um, when we do that. So I wanna talk like briefly about some, some of the lessons that I learned in this work with Laura and the NACWA workshop, and then also some stuff that's been happening right now so i'll start with right now for the past five weeks i've been working with laura to write a brief about um that's analyzing western media silencing and deliberate propaganda against palestinians and i'm being very sincere when i say every couple of minutes while i'm writing the story changes the news changes i get a new notification i have to shift i have to cut i have to step back another reporter in Gaza has been killed another hospital has been bombed the conditions under which we are writing and under which we're approaching these stories are also very difficult as like narrators, right? Um, And so I think one thing that Laura was also mentioning when we were talking about the perspective from the journalist, it takes time to produce these histories. It takes time to write these stories, right? But sometimes, and especially right now, we don't necessarily have that time. So we have to reconsider how we approach narrating Um, and we have to be vigilant, but we really very sincerely And I mean this from both like the perspective as like a Palestinian writer and for somebody who may be potentially outside of the context of Palestine or even someone who wants to approach um, an oral history project who is not of the community that they are writing on, whose history they're narrating. You have to be very considerate of the stakes of the story that you're writing at all times. And as I mentioned earlier, it's what do you intend to write? What is the intended impact? And that was still very relevant when I was writing my necklace story um, in May. As Laura knows, I had to push back. I had to request like an extension on the deadline because my grandparents started coming out with different stories. They started like calling me and my family was telling me like, oh, your grandpa just remembered the way that his father died. So I'm getting new information. I'm going back and forth with Laura because... A historical moment that my family remembers is not actually historical we're checking with palestinian scholars we can't find record of these things it's very difficult but also at the same time i have to honor my family's story although i am very intimately intertwined with this right these are my grandparents this is technically my story as well the trauma that i'm writing about is intergenerational i've adopted a lot of that um it's still very very difficult to honor the life that they lived and the way that they had to the the, the memories that they even have of their land if they have at all right so like for my grandfather when we start with these questions I was like oh what do you remember of your childhood home nothing what do you remember of the landscape nothing did you like school no I left when I was 12 but I think if I had finished I would have been really successful um and like a lot of these conversations that we're having obviously it's difficult for me because I'm I'm living it now as well, right? Like I, a conversation that we had was, I was like, I never understood, I just thought it was like an Arab thing that we really value education. (laughs) I I thought it was just, you know, this is just my family. But then it turned out that generations of my family were not allowed to get an education. And so that passed on to me. So the pressure is high, the stakes are high. I have to work very hard. Um, And as part of that, when they're also telling me these things, when My grandfather left in 1948, when my grandmother left in 1963, um, they're telling me, like, how they had to also conceal their identity and how they had to move and how they they had to function to be able to succeed in society. So when I'm also writing the story, they're telling me, you have to be careful. Like, you don't want to get kicked out of school. You don't want these things to happen to you. Even us having this conversation right now, there were, like, a lot of issues with it for safety, for various reasons and i think that's that's something that we have to be considerate of so when we're narrating these stories for other people we have to consider their safety as well especially for individuals who maybe somebody's my age who's living in kuzza right now maybe somebody is a little bit older but they still have that fear they don't want to give us their story it's a very very difficult thing to contend with when we're conducting oral history interviews when we're narrating these stories um and so sort of like the lessons that i learned were how to interact with this and how to be kind of like relinquishing yourself to the story, right? Yes, you're the writer, you're the author, you're the narrator, even if it is your family's own story, you have to kind of separate yourself and look at it as how does this affect the people who I'm writing about? Who's the community that I'm actually targeting with this narrative, especially in our case when we're narrating stories of Palestinians, is it for our own community? Like, is it just to preserve our history? Is it for future generations? Or is it for the world to actually like recognize us as human, right? Like what is the function of these stories? Um, and I think Laura will give us a really phenomenal anecdote on that um, and, and how that works in this particular moment. So I'll go ahead and pass it on to you, sorry.
1: No, 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 this was, that, was, that was incredible. And I, I do wanna encourage people, you know, after I speak a little bit right now, we're gonna read two excerpts Short excerpts from Marah's story and then one of the letters that we have translated and published. Um, and I would encourage you if you have any questions or reflections, like please speak up. And if you're online, we can also have you um, come come on the screen. Um, just going off what what Marah said, um, Just about the idea of humanizing ourselves. We're talking, I I wanna give you a little story. I think there's a problem with American journalism. You know, like I'm more familiar with American journalism and I'll stick there. I've been in spaces with other mainstream American journalists receiving training as, you know, um, training on how do we do X and Y and how do we manage our own newsrooms and all these things. There was one time where we had um, a speaker from a really big broadcasting organization and the way they were talking about coverage i they were talking about it in the sense of like you need to get the story you need to get the story you Mm -hmm. have to do all you can to get the story and i had a pressing question i'm a palestinian anything i say anything i report about my community can put them in danger and i will i'll give you an example of that based on so i asked that the speaker a question and I said well what if there is a really there's a good story there's a story in your community that you think should be told that has not been told yet and you'd be the first person to tell it but if you told it you're going to get them in trouble and her answer is terrible (laughs) she told me well as a journalist you have to be removed from that from that space and if it's a good story and it needs to be told then it needs to be told and you can let the individuals you're interviewing know that if you if they don't want to speak to you then they don't speak to you someone else will you know you go see someone else someone else might speak to you you'll still get the story and after that session ended a, a couple of other journalists who also come from backgrounds of color came up to me and said you know we feel the same way if we were to report on our community about a specific story, we may put them in harm's way. And let me give you an example from Ghazi. One of the individuals, he's a young man, I had interviewed, um, currently transcribing the interview so we can publish it. Um, while we were talking, he told me, please don't mention the name of this place, or please don't specify the name of this individual I talked to you about. And I know why, <laughs> right? But any other journalist would be like, no, like for verification purposes, I need to have that name. And I understand for verification purposes. Yes, you can't just report something someone told you without verifying where it's coming from. It's your job as a journalist to make sure you're reporting the truth. But at the same time, I recognize that 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 individual was telling, was telling me about an incident that happened in a neighborhood. Now, if I wrote that that incident happened and named the neighborhood and tomorrow that neighborhood is bombed, Did I have a role in that that I put that name of the neighborhood over there and the story is very horrifying it's the individual found a pregnant lady there are no hospitals to receive her he's just driving around with a pregnant woman who's about to give birth and there's no hospitals to receive her and he was telling me about where he was trying to go and I I can't name these places, because these places will get bombed, you know, and maybe you think, oh, it's a small publication, no one's going to find you. You, We don't know that. We've seen multiple journalists from small publications, freelancers get phone calls in Gaza and get threatened. So there is a responsibility that exists when you have trauma informed training, that when you get to a point where you're telling a story, and there's a fact that exists, that you have to attribute to an individual you're interviewing, what is the impact on that individual? There are workarounds around it. So let's say I was interviewing someone and they were telling me about the situation at an Unurwa school, the internet cut off. I can't reach them. I can't do follow-up clarifying questions. There's a limitation there because in, in the state, yani we had the time, we had the privilege and the time, alhamdulillah, to have conversations with Marah's grandparents. We don't have the privilege and the time to talk to people in Gaza. A work around that is, okay, they told me they're sheltering at a specific UNURWA school. I can just go to an UNURWA spokesperson in the U.S. and ask them some factual information that can help clarify whatever question I had about the situation in that school. So there are different ways that we can work around it without having to chase the story. Um, A few lessons I, I would like to share. And before I do that, just to bring us back into the idea of journalism, Journalism has a vast, vast history. And you know, if you read different texts, it tells you that it was just, you know, a political pamphlet going around because of the wars that were happening. Others will tell you, well, it's to inform and persuade and entertain. There's so many texts that are there, but in its essence, journalism is to inform an audience, a particular community, about what's happening around them, for them to take that information and make decisions on their own and make their own opinions. What has happened today, in America specifically, we have focused so much on journalism that seeks truth that now the question remains, whose truth are they seeking? It is no longer a journalism that seeks truth to inform, but it's a journalism that seeks someone's truth to to harm in many ways. Let's talk about some of the journalists in Gaza. We've seen some of the prominent journalists put out posts criticizing how foreign journalists were reaching out to them, nagging them, some of them talking to them in a language they don't understand, um, some of them saying, I already said all that I can say, stop asking me these questions. Well, there needs to be a lesson learned from there is that, ha- okay, something's happening right now, you need to cover it. But are you thinking about the impact of the person you're reaching out to? You're never going to talk to them again. You're going to get your quote, put it in your story covering about something that happened in Gaza, and you're going to move on with your life. And that person's going to stay there under the bombs. Um, there's, you know, maybe another story that that I can tell you a little bit. Um, sorry, let me just go go back to my notes. Um, Yes, I mentioned this. Uh, I, I think I actually gave you all the, all the examples that I wanted to, wanted to give. Um, but what I'll, what I'll end with is, you know, I, I did notice, and maybe this is something, if someone in the audience wants to dive into it, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting observation I had, is that the majority of people in Ghazi want to talk. So Marah and I and the other writers in the workshop had a great difficulty getting our elders and parents to talk about what happened to them during the Nakba, about what ha- happened to them when they became refugees. We kept asking questions like, "Teta, t- tell me about this, t- 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 can I come back tomorrow and, and can you tell me about this? It was very difficult getting them to tell us a complete story and we understand. The Nakba was horrific, they were displaced from their homes, it was a time where there's no phones, no, you can't just call someone for help, yani, you know, you um, but I think my level of understanding is a little different now that we've seen what has happened in Gaza, we're seeing what's happening to the people on our screens, over the phone, uh, on phone calls, on TV, we're seeing the level of horror. How would anyone who has experienced anything like that want to sit down and tell you look what what has happened to me but i think what i'm trying to say here is the difference is the people in Gaza want to talk and i think maybe it's you know it's in the moment they want someone to do something about it nobody's doing anything about it but then our elders didn't want to talk about it they didn't want to talk about the nakba. it took time to talk about the nakba um, something to think about, something that I, I'm just thinking about. I don't know how to describe it. I don't know how to explain it, um, but I found it to be interesting. And, you know, Marah spoke also a little bit about this, about us being Palestinians ourselves, doing the work of some journalists as reporters, the people in Gaza, taking on the role as citizen journalists ourselves experiencing forms of trauma and then those of us abroad experiencing forms of guilt. How how what what is how dare I send a message to someone who has been displaced to the south and they don't have water and the internet is scarce and tell them, hey, can you give me 10 minutes of your time to tell me about your journey? Those are the feelings that that are sort of going around in my head at least. Um, and, and I'll end there and maybe we can You can read the excerpt, uh, Marah, if you
0: want to, yeah. Yes, yeah, I'll go ahead and read. But before I do, I just wanted to mention, because Laura and I had a conversation about this right before, um, about this exact point that she just mentioned right before um, this talk. And and we were kind of thinking of it in like a sense of post-survival versus like actively trying to survive, right? So like why... And I think that all like drives back to my point earlier about like the extreme, like the high stakes of narrating specifically in the case of Palestine um, at any point in history. But to kind of relate the two, I didn't want to read an excerpt from my writing. (laughs) I'm going to be very honest. Laura and I went back and forth a lot about this because I was like, I don't, I'm not gonna say my reasons. But um, I was just like, I, I just feel like I want to ensure that like we have the focus on the right things. Um, so, so. But wait, let I'm me. I'm going do... to give you guys. Yeah, but, but
1: well, yes. I, I think, I think like just to let people know, like, I, I think there's a lot of. My story is very, very impactful. So I know she's going to read an excerpt from it, but I do. I'm going to put the link in the chat. And I really do encourage people to read it because it is. It is a very beautiful story. We're talking about her, and she 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 already spoke about this. We're talking about her three grandparents who experienced dementia revisiting those memories and how it plays in the greater scheme of things. Cause we talked about oral history being placing you in the in, in history, right? And in, in, in a historical timeline. What happened in Selwad in 1948? Her three grandparents were there. They can speak to that. So don't sell yourself short. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Thank you. No, no, I just I just wanted to, like, clarify the kind of the relevance of these stories. Like, the story that my grandparents specifically narrated was from 1963. It's 2023. And this is still ha- like this is a very relevant story for what's occurring right now. And, and Laura will give you guys an excerpt um, in a short moment that that reflects that. So I'll read a little bit from my story. Um, marrying Sidi Mahmoud at only 15 exposed Taita Nazmiya, my grandmother, to the terrifying reality of the village under occupation, gradually preparing them for expulsion in 1963. Clutching the hands of her two-year-old son while bearing a newborn in her lap, Taita Nazmiya was wedged between other families from the village in the back of an old truck. They fled to the border in herds, desperately seeking refuge in Amman as war ensued in the West Bank. Taita hurriedly accompanied other families from the village to meet Sidi Mahmoud, who left his working quick to recover his family at the Amman border. She said, the occupation was eager to get rid of us. They wanted to empty the villages when they occupied Palestine. They wanted to expel the Palestinians to take our land. They were ecstatic to turn us into refugees. They even escorted us to Jordan. Arriving at the unpaved border, Taita Nazmiya clung to her sons as she navigated a wavering piece of wood Serving as the makeshift crossing into Jordan, she reached my grandmother, my grandfather, and commenced her displacement. Now I'll pass it on to you.
1: And this is a letter, a testimony from Fida Ziad. It's called "Attempts at Survival." Uh, we published this um, on the seventh of November, um, and but she has been writing it um, on between October twenty-nine and October thirtieth. So this excerpt that I read, in wartime, you cannot make decisions on your own. You are the casualty of majority decisions and you must abide by it or you will die alone or at most you will die with those you manage to convince to stay with you. It's an instinctual belief. The death in a group is a mercy. If you are a displaced guest in someone's house who has made the decision to flee, then you also, once again, to flee along with them. We had walked around 36 kilometers to remain in this house. In, in this house, I write these words as the clock strikes 8 p.m. This is October 30, and we must head to the street with around 33 other people. There the question emerges, where do we go? We don't have the luxury of an answer. We're on the street, and we must set aside our fear and anger in order to help others. I am occupied with two wheelchair bound women, while the children in the group let out their anxiety and screams. I deal with mine by helping the two women as we look for a place to stay. After that, we will find out if it is safe.